This is Horum with Horum's Quorum. My guest today is Judge Matthew Kennelly of the Northern District of Illinois. I'm fascinated by federal judges because they're maybe the last true generalists, and I think there's a lot any of us can learn from how they make high-stakes decisions on a wide range of issues. It's rare to get an opportunity to sit with a federal judge, particularly one with as busy a docket as Judge Kennelly, so I hope you'll value these two hours as much as I do. Judge Kennelly, it's great to see you again. Thanks for taking the time to talk. Happy to be here. So we talked last time about a few things around your docket and some of the interesting implications from all the kinds of matters that you manage. I thought we'd begin by uh, talking about your intake of cases. You know, I think you said you're getting these days about 30 new cases a month. And tell us about that flow. So you, you get these cases in and then how is it that you are processing these cases and moving them along and help us get a glimpse about that part of your role. Sure. So to start off with, uh, federal district judges are basically what I would call the last of the generalists. We get all types of cases, both civil and criminal, uh, of varying degrees of complexity. Um, as you said, I get um, about 30 new civil cases per month, give or take a little bit, a couple or three new criminal cases per month. So it, it, I'm right about in the average in our court, I have at any given time about 280 civil cases and about 40 or 45 criminal cases at the moment. So um, what that means is that um, if I essentially do nothing in a month, my caseload goes up by 35. If I do a lot in a month, it might go down a little bit, but I still get those 35 new cases in. And uh, I, I sometimes, in talking to interns and law clerks, analogize the job to that old I Love Lucy episode with Lucy and Ethel working on the candy line, the candy assembly line with the candies coming down, and the candies keep coming down at a constant rate, and they're spending a lot of time on decorating them. And eventually, they get behind very quickly, and the candies start falling off the line, and they're putting them in their hats and their pockets. So that line is my new cases on a given month or day or week, and uh, I have to keep the line moving. And so when, when a case comes in, particularly on the civil side, I have to get a handle on it and basically at a fairly early stage, get it organized and get the case moving so that it doesn't languish. Uh, most lawyers are um, overly burdened. They have too much to do and not enough time to do it in. They're always juggling. And, um, and so I need to make sure that, you know, any given case that's assigned to me stays at least on their radar screen somewhere and doesn't, because if I don't do that, um, it'll fall off the radar screen and it'll just sit. And um, in the long run, that's not good for the legal system because it's not good for cases to languish. They should get decided in one way or ruled on, settled or resolved in one way or another. I think part of understanding that process, I think it's important to understand all the parts involved your brain work. So when you say that you're getting a handle on, on these simple cases and getting a sense of what's some of the early work that needs to be done on these, how much of that is based on substantive determinations of the subject matter? Say, okay, well, if this is yeah. a class action, that means this, or this is a personal injury, that means that. Uh, then, you know, I, I'm trying to get a sense of like how much of that is, is, you know, determinations you've made based on your experience and, and understanding the subject matter. Yeah, so so case management is is really, um, that, that just proves that I didn't uh, turn off that stupid phone. Okay, so I'm just gonna decline it. Sorry about that, I'll answer that question. Do you want me to just pretend like it just started answering? No, we, we, we're, we can just go with this. 
Okay. So, um, yeah, I lost my train of thought. Okay. So, ba so basically what happens is a case management is there's no form book that says this is what you do. Um, I mean, the, there's a there's a set of rules called the rules of civil procedure that set these sort of very general outlines that basically say, get the case organized. And that's essentially what they say. And so it's it's up to a judge like me to decide how that happens. And I do that largely based on my experience, both in practicing law, you know, for 18 years before I became a judge and in working as a judge for 20 plus years. Um, to get a sense of how quickly, slowly, medium speed, whatever a case should progress and how like how it's going to get, how complicated it's going to get at what stage. Now, some of that is going to be dependent upon things generated by the parties. So for example, a lawsuit may come in and the parties may come in and say, we're already talking about settling the case. And I can just kind of send it off one way. Or a lawsuit may come in and the the, the defendant, the party who's been sued may, you know, file some sort of a complicated motion saying the case lacks merit, you should throw it out right now. And I may deal with it in another way. The majority of cases fall somewhere in between those two. And I basically have to decide based on my experience and, and obviously with a lot of input from the parties, um, you know, how to organize things and keep them moving. Um, you know, the judge is, of, of all the people who are involved in the case, so the lawyers, the litigants, and the judge, the judge is the most ignorant, knows the least about the case. I know about case management, and I can kind of figure out where to, what particular pigeonhole or category or stovepipe to put a particular case in, but I'm not going to know exactly how complicated or uncomplicated it is until I spend time talking to the parties about it and hearing from them about how complicated it is. So what I, I typically do, and I, and, and, and I do this not because I'm a nice guy, but, uh, but, but because I think it's the most efficient way to do it, given what I just said, is I'll ask the parties to propose a schedule to me. How long do they think it's going to, what do they think they have to do and how long do they think it's going to take to do it? And I sort of measure that against a rough yardstick of my experience and determine whether it, whether I think it's reasonable, or not overwhelming majority of cases I do. And then I direct them to follow the schedule that they've already agreed to at the outset. And so if, if counsel, if you say that, you know, the judges are going to be least knowledgeable of the case, I think correspondingly, I think the corollary of that is that uh, the attorneys are the least, uh, have the least information or understanding about how the judge thinks about case management. So mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty interesting thing to, to follow up on. And so I think maybe one way of approaching that is, what case management technique have you developed over time that you're most proud of or you found the most effective? Well, yeah, I, I'm not, you know, I, I don't think I have a, a trophy case that has my best case management techniques. That would be kind of a boring trophy case. Um, but, um, you know, what I, what I would say is I, I, I it, listening is a, is a pretty important thing. I mean, I, litigated both civil and criminal cases for quite a number of years before I became a judge. And I appeared in front of judges who had every case be handled the same way. You come in, your trial date's in 180 days, or your trial date's in a year, or I'm not going to give you a trial date, just go off and do whatever you want to do. And, um, and without really any care or in, even interest in, in what the parties had to say. And, and that's certainly a way of doing it. Basically, what that's called is elbowing your way to the front of the line. Mm -hmm. 
it's basically like saying to the lawyer, I don't care about the rest of your cases, the rest of your life. My case goes at the top of the list. You're just going to deal with my case. And, you know, that's a way of doing it. And, and, you know, I guess for those judges, and I appeared in front of judges like that over the years, that works. And I, and I'm not going to say that there aren't points in a case where I tell people, look, I know you're asking for more time, but I'm not going to give it to you. But I think as a general, as a general technique, that's kind of the opposite of how it ought to work, mm-hmm. um, because we 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 have to under the rules make sure things get decided not just in a speedy way but in a just way, and if basically the basically your your technique is to tell everybody you got to floor it from day one, that's not likely to result in a just resolution. It'll result in a resolution for sure, and it definitely worked for those judges that I appeared in front of. All those cases would go away before the 90-day trial date. Um, yeah, but were they going away in a way that they should have gone away? You know, probably not. So um, so what, what I do is, like I say, I try to listen. I, I try to impose some sort of, you know, reasonableness boundaries on what I listen to. In other words, if somebody comes in on a routine, um, you know, uh, breach of contract case and says it's going to take us six years to conduct discovery, unless they tell me that the witnesses are all in, you know, Dubai and Taiwan and Germany and, you know, the Philippines and various other places, I'm going to say, no, no folks, I'm, I'm sorry. That's just not going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, if they do something that's within a, re- a range of reasonableness, which is a range, I'm probably going to go along with it. And, and then in terms of techniques, one of the things that it, I do think it's important to do, and, you know, the, the chief justice or current chief justice has kind of emphasized, um, what the rules of civil procedure have kind of always said, at least in my career, that the judge should be an active manager, that it's important for judge to be aware of and actively manage their cases. I ask questions. If somebody, if somebody, you know, wants more than the average amount of time, I ask them why. I don't just routinely agree to it. I get them to justify it. Um, I bring, I try to bring up the topic of voluntary resolution, settlement mediation at regular intervals. Um, one of the reasons for that is that, you know, I, I observed in the course of practicing that many lawyers believe that if you're the first person to bring up settlement, it's a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. And I happen to think that's false and probably demonstrably false, but people believe it. So you got to deal with it. And, you know, before I started in this job, I spent a lot of time talking to um, to other judges in our district. And I had been in front of most of those judges and observed their techniques and Still remember one of them saying that you know you 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 one of the ways you take the issue of um, of reluctance to discuss settlement off the table is you just tell people you're going to make a settlement proposal by X you're going to make you respond to it by Y and then people can go back to their clients and the client isn't saying wait a second wait a second this, this is a sign of weakness no they can say no the judge has ordered us to do this and so now we're going to do it so I try to do that I think that's reasonably effective I didn't invent that that comes from a magistrate judge named Mort Denlow. That's at least who I got it from. Um, now, now retired and doing private judging, but, um, but you know, other things, the other things I try to do if, if there's um, it, you know, without getting too far into the weeds of civil procedure, um, it's pretty common, for example, in civil litigation for the defendant to file a motion saying that the complaint is deficient on its face. It's what we call in federal court, a 12 B six motion. Um, you know, back in the in the mid aughts, the Supreme Court case said in a case called Bell Atlantic versus Twombly that district judges ought to be able to just figure that out. It's pretty easy, right? Now, 
I, I will say that none of the judges on the Supreme Court who said that had ever been a district judge, I think, at that point in time. But that's not altogether wrong. And I think it's a certain level it's true. And so what I try to do on those types of motions is instead of saying, okay, everything's going to grind to a halt and we're going to brief that motion for two months and then I'm going to sit on it for a while and decide it, I'll look at the motion, I'll look at the complaint when they first come in and I'll say to the plaintiff, if I think the complaint's weak, I'll say, look, you got some problems here. You might want to go back and if you can, you know, ethically do it, you you, you might want to think about amending your complaint. If I think that if I think that the motion asking to throw out the complaint, dismiss the complaint is meritless, I, I don't make people respond to it. So I don't routinely set briefing schedules on those kinds of things. One of the other things I do, again, and I didn't learn this myself, I, I adopted it from other judges around here, but I certainly observed it in practice is that, you know, it's a pretty um, common thing in civil litigation for there to be disputes about discovery, who can get what from whom and when and how broad it can be and how narrow and so on. And I appeared in front of judges over the years in this district and other districts who, when there was a discovery dispute, they'd set a briefing schedule, like just as a matter of routine. And so you'd brief the motion for just the discovery motion for a month and the judge would rule on it a couple of weeks later and guess what would happen during those six weeks and the rest of the case? Nothing everything stops because everybody's waiting for the judge to decide. Why does that need to happen that way? So when, when I did my rounds before I, you know, after I got confirmed and before I started the job, one of the sort of recurring themes I would hear from judges who did their own uh, discovery supervision is don't let people brief discovery motions. Do your, unless they're really complicated, do your best when they come in, rule on it right then, hear argument, rule on it. And so I've done that. I mean, it's very rare for me. There's a pandemic exception to this, like everything, but um, uh, very rare for me to set brie a briefing schedule on a discovery dispute. Typically what'll happen, so nowadays we're, in the old days people were regularly coming into court and so they'd have to say, here's my discovery dispute, I'm gonna come in front of the judge in three days and I'd get it resolved when they came in. Now it doesn't happen that way and so what I typically do is I say, okay, you filed your discovery request or motion on such and such a day, we're gonna have a phone conference a week from today and I'm gonna decide it then. If you want to file something before that, go ahead and file it. Otherwise, just be prepared to talk about it on the phone. I rule on it then. And then we've lost four or five days in the case, not six weeks. I mean, I was in cases where, you know, what would happen is that the, the judge would set a schedule on discovery motion. I and the other litigants would bring everything to a halt. And then the thing would get lost in the shuffle. And four months later, you're still waiting for a decision. And in the meantime, nothing's happened in the case. In any given lawsuit, delay can be in somebody's interest, but just in terms of the overall system, it's not, and it shouldn't be that way. Yeah, I think another thing about that is my understanding is that all things considered, delay means more money to the lawyers. And oh, there's no question. Yeah. At, at least when both sides are paying, paying, paying as they go. That's yeah. definitely true. It benefits the lawyers. And, you know, as, as uh, the judge that I clerk for used to say, there's no maybe no higher and better use to which a person can put their money than the payment of a reasonable attorney's fee. And so at a, with a half smile on my face, I sort of agree with that. But that doesn't mean I have to, I have to bump the, the tab up. So I wonder if in talking about these different styles to approaching how to handle discovery disputes, I, I'm kind of interested in the style aspect of that. Do you feel like there are trends in jurisprudence where, you know, maybe there's a trend, is there a trend, for instance, like if you say, you know, in the Northern District, there is this more underscoring of the active management approach to, uh, to the judge's docket. Do you feel like those are things that come and go, at, you know, in a, say a, 
several no, decades. No, I think I would say over time, the trend has been one direction, and that is with more active management. Now, that's not a straight graph going up. There's some bumpy lines on it, and different judges that that trend line is moving at different rates. Um, you know, in our, our we have a very large district, you know, 20, uh, 21 active district judges, eight, nine, 10 senior judges at various levels of activity, you know, a dozen plus magistrate judges, all of whom are supervising cases. So anytime you got 40 people, 40 more or less life tenured people uh, doing something, you're going to have at least 40 different ways of doing it. But um, my sense is that of the judges who do manage their own cases, and I, of course, have the option to defer that to a magistrate judge, but of the judges who do manage their own cases, I think the trend is over the course of the 40 years I've been a lawyer and a judge has been more management, not less. To what do you attribute that trend? Uh, so it's it's a function of the rules of civil procedure that when I started, I'm holding my fingers up being about an inch thick, and now they're about two and a half inches thick. So more rules means more more stuff to you know talk about, but it's it's really just um, I think just a, a general trend in federal litigation promoted um, by you know by currently the chief justice and and it completely correctly I think um, and by the judicial education we get what we you know refer to in the federal system as baby judges school um, it just the, the, that's the way you're trained. And, and as lawyers come through the system, of course, you know, most people who most, but not all people who become federal judges have been federal litigators mm -hmm. and that's what they're used to. And you tend to kind of do what you've seen. And so um, I, I, I think it just increases over time. And then what, what people, many, not all, probably most, but not all judges tend to realize is that um, yeah, it's more work uh, for you, but it, it pays off. The, the, the payoff is the following. So again, I could just do nothing on my cases, just wait for the motions to come in and rule on them, just let nature take its course. And there are judges who operate that way and they have nice, uh, you know, it's, it's an, they have nice lives, just like I have a nice life. Okay. It's a way of doing things. But here's the difference. I have 280 cases. That judge has 450. And any given 10 cases is going to generate a certain number of things that I'm going to have to spend a lot of time on, like what we call a summary judgment motion or a motion to dismiss or class certification or maybe a trial or something like that. And if I have 450 cases, if one out of every, if two out of every 10 cases generates a motion for summary judgment, that's going to be a much bigger number than if I have 100, if I have 250. So the payoff in the management is you're putting more into the front end, but you're having less work on the back end and less, um, you know, less, uh, uh, the cases get resolved if they're paid attention to on their own. You know, 97% of civil cases, if not more, are going to settle at some point. What you can do as a judge, perhaps, is kind of move the needle in terms of what point they get settled at. Is it sooner or is it later? You know, is it five years after the case gets filed or is it two and a half years after the case gets filed or one year after the case gets filed? And the more actively you manage it, the more likely it is that that number is going to get shortened. And I think, again, in a given case, that might be detrimental to one side or another, but from an overall system standpoint, it's good for the system. Do you have any intuitions about 
you know, the satisfaction parties have with settlement at those different phases. So how much more satisfied are parties with yeah. early resolution? That's a great question. And I, I you know, I, I don't know that I've never seen a study on it. It, it probably could be studied. Um, I, I will tell you that my, my sense is, is that, is that when cases get settled, um, people tend to be satisfied with it. Doesn't mean happy, means satisfied. In other words, it's it's a it's a cost benefit thing. It it's it's a better resolution than you know what would happen if you didn't make the resolution. And so my guess is is that the satisfaction level probably doesn't vary a whole lot. And I mean, if you look at it from a sort of a holistic standpoint, if I'm a if I'm a you know let's say a defendant who's paying hourly fees and I settle the case after paying my lawyer fifty thousand dollars as opposed to after paying my lawyer two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, I ought to be happier. At least if the settlement's the same, of course you'll never know. But but um, uh, that 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 ought to be beneficial to me. And the same is true on the other side. At least if the plaintiff is paying an hourly fee, if it's a contingent fee, it's a different story. Mm-hmm. To pick up, I think in a couple of different ways you alluded to the different styles that different judges have, and you know you're all kind of you're all equals in that way. You all can just trade ideas, but you're all left to manage your own chambers, you know, in your own way. And you tied it to uh, the fact of lifetime tenure because then just over the course of, you know, someone's multi-decade career, they, they can uh, continue to go in some direction and really refine some process. And that could be maybe significantly different than another judge. So to me, that's an interesting consequence of lifetime tenure that I hadn't considered before. You know, what are some of the other consequences of lifetime tenure? Because that's a very specific uh, you know, we don't really have that in a lot of, a lot of other aspects of society. So it's a very unique thing. And by virtue of you being a generalist, you see so much about how else things are done. So what are, what are some of the non-obvious implications or consequences of lifetime tenure? Well, okay, it's easier to start with the obvious ones. The obvious one is that since I don't have to run for retention or election or whatever, um, I don't have I don't have to be concerned that um, if I issue a decision that, you know, um, a columnist for the Tribune um, thinks is an outrage, that I'm going to lose my job. And um, and I, who knows whether I'd do that anyway. But um, the, the fact that you don't have, it doesn't even cross your radar screen, I think is a significant thing in terms of, you know, how judges operate, that you're not constantly having to think about looking over your shoulder and trying to figure out what might be gaining on you. Um, so that's the big thing. I mean, the other thing is, is that, is that, I mean, this is suggested by your question, it gives you an opportunity to try out different things. I don't have to do the same thing now that I did 10 years ago. Now, you know, so the obvious follow-up is going to be, okay, what are you doing differently? And I, and I, so I'm leading my, I'm leading with my chin on this one. Um, I, you know, there's, there's, it, it all ends up being nuance. And, you know, one of the, the, the sort of the, the countervailing factor for this thing that gives you kind of the liberty to do different things and try out something and see if it works and so on. The countervailing factor is, I don't know, you could call it the cocoon factor or what some people call robitis or whatever. And that is that, you know, you're in this little tiny world. You don't get any, you don't get any, um, honest feedback from anybody. It's always, you know, uproarious laughter when you say something that's even mildly funny. 
um, it's always, oh, you're such a wonderful pillar of the community. And, you know, it, it's by the grace of God, you get put on the bench or whatever. Um, and there's sort of this temptation, if, if, you, if, you, if you're not into kind of a self-examination mode, to kind of figure, hey, everything's great. Nobody complains. Everything must be going fine. And, you know, one of the, for, for me at least, one of the things that I, you, you constantly kind of have to elbow yourself on, I think, is, um, you know, what am I doing that could be done differently and that might successfully be done differently? And the problem, of course, is, is that, you know, we're in this, we're in this system here. We're in our own little world. It's like I said, there's 40 judges. It's, four, it's like 40 different little law firms. We're all in the same building. But it's not like, you know, when I was with my old law firm, which was six lawyers, and I just, you know, show up in the next person's office and say, hey, what's going on? I mean, that doesn't happen around here all that much. Um, but, you know, we do have opportunities to, to get together and you hear how other people are doing things differently. And I mean, so recently, for example, um, I mean, I've always, or at least more or less always managed civil cases in kind of the active way that I described. I had not done that in criminal cases. You know, it's criminal cases are different in a lot of ways, but the lawyers tend to be more on the ball um, in terms of keeping things moving. And they, you tend not to have to manage them as much, or at least that was my theory. And um, recently, this probably goes back to a little bit before the pandemic, uh, I was on a committee because we were trying to deal with some issues having to do with um, staffing of the marshal service, and, which is going to con constantly understaffed, and um, how we could deal with that. And one of the things that um, came out of that is that our court was having a lot more in-person appearances on sort of routine status hearings in criminal cases than virtually every place else in the country. And I think that's probably just sort of a, a, a carryover for what we do in civil cases. That's what we had always done in civil cases. But when you've got defendants in custody in criminal cases, anytime one person comes to court, they have to be two marshals with them, plus the people in the lockup and so on. So we had, all, we had these big staffing problems. And one of the things that um, a judge who's, you know, happens to be on my floor, but has been a judge, you know, maybe 15, 12, 15 years less than me was doing is he was doing the same kind of thing in his criminal cases that all of us had been doing in our civil cases, which is getting kind of frequent and detailed reports from the lawyers about, you know, what discovery have you been produced? When's it due? When are you going to get it to them? And just constantly nudging them, not making the parties come in for that, but making them file kind of reports. And if somebody says, well, judge, you know, the prosecutor says, well, we're going to get the defendant a draft of a plea agreement uh, in the near future. You'd say, fine, you got two weeks to do that. Whereas most of us, myself included, really weren't doing that. And so it, it, I think that's, I'm going to try that out. And so I kind of changed how I was dealing with criminal cases kind of as a result of that. And, and, you know, does it have an effect? Yeah, everything affects things that in, in some marginal way, but I think it does. And it, and it, uh, you know, it keeps people a little bit more on the ball. They, they don't get the sense that all I got to do is kind of show up and say, Oh, we need more time. And the judge, judge is just going to send me away. And, and so, um, you know, bringing it back to your question, which I've gotten pretty far away from here, um, you know, you, you do have the opportunity if you, if you keep your ears open and you talk and you listen to, to see how other people are doing things and maybe say, hey, 
I'm not going to completely change my procedure. I'm going to try that out and see how it works. And, and if it works, then you can maybe change how you're doing things on a regular basis. So I mean, it sounds like there are some ideas like this one that just seem, it's unlikely someone's going to say that isn't better. You know, it just seems so likely to, to result in better case management. And so it seems like there's at least some no-brainers. And so you know, what are the obstacles you see to more widespread adoption of that? Because it sounds like, you know, I, I feel like in, in the conversation we've had recently, I think case management has been a key thing that you've underscored about your role. Maybe it's because it's the least yeah. appreciated part of your role, uh, but it also seems like it's very much top of mind and, and very uh, just day-to-day blocking and tackling. And so I'm just kind of curious about the ways in which you'd like to make that process easier for yourself and other judges. And you know, I think there's also maybe a, a benefit to the, the public and maybe a more consistent application and a consistent administration of justice. So, so what are your thoughts on, on that uh, needing to be implemented, uh, you know, right. some well, of the best processes? The last thing that you said, consistency, I mean, I think is a, is a big and probably unsolvable issue on a, on a large scale. I mean, there are smaller districts, smaller federal district courts, let's say the two or three or four judge districts, where what they have done is they've basically developed kind of templates. Your case is a category one case, or it's a category two or category three and category four. And depending upon what category it is, you're going to have this much amount of time to do X. You're going to have this much amount of time to do Y. You're going to have this much amount of time to do Z. And yeah, all those dates are subject to modification by the judge, but the uh, the notion is your case is categorized. It's going to go into a pile. Um, And so in those districts, everything's very consistent. Just like when um, when we had mandatory sentencing guidelines. Now, this is not a great analogy. There's a big difference between how somebody how somebody how somebody manages a civil case and how many years they have to go to prison. Okay, um, obviously. But um, back when we had mandatory sentencing guidelines, at a certain level, sentencing became easy. You count up the points, you get a range. You sentence at the bottom of the range, the top of the range, or the middle. It's not a big range. You're done. It's very easy. All you have to do is calculate the points correctly. Um, And so there's consistency. And in the law and in the system of justice, there's this constant tension between consistency and individual attention and treating people as individuals and treating cases as individuals. And over time, that pendulum tends to go back and forth. So, and and I'm, I'm I'm gonna keep up with the sentencing analogy here for a moment. So, the uh, Congress passed in, um, in the mid-80s something called the Sentencing Reform Act, which is the thing that instituted what we call the federal sentencing guidelines. And the two primary sponsors of that legislation were Ted Kennedy and Strom Thurmond. And they, they both, and, and what it did, so before that, sentencing was completely discretionary. You might look at the same case, let's say a, a, an income tax evasion case, and Judge A might give the same defendant probation, and Judge B might give him 10 years in prison or whatever the maximum is for income tax evasion. And no review. It's, it was all considered discretionary unless the judge had considered something, some inappropriate factor. It's that the sentence is what it is. So, um, so Senator Thurmond, I think, and I, I may be getting history a little bit off here, but Senator Thurmond was more interested in the consistency part of it. Why is Judge X given somebody 10 years and Judge Y given somebody probation? And 
Senator Kennedy was perhaps more interested in that, but also interested, more interested in, in some of the kind of outliers on the high end. So each one was kind of interested in the outliers on the other end. And, and the result of it was the sentencing guidelines, which for 20 years were, you know, close to 20 years were considered mandatory. You couldn't vary from whatever that little range was, except in very unusual circumstances. And so we had this system, which was, you knew, you, you're going to get the same sentence in the Western District of Oklahoma as you were going to get in the District of Rhode Island. Um in front of two different judges for the same crime. On the other hand, nobody was going to consider whether, um, you know, you maybe had um, uh, um, sick parents at home that you were taking care of, or that you, you know, you were the sole support for your four children, um, or, you know, you had some sort of previously undiscovered mental disorder that was causing you to commit the crimes. None of that was going to be considered. Or whether, on the other hand, you were somebody who, you know, was just kind of a bad dude and um, anytime you got out of prison was going to do something to get back in. And so we had, we, we adopted consistency and we sacrificed um, individual attention. Um, that changed in the mid-2000s. Um, Supreme Court decided that the sentencing guidelines were advisory and not mandatory. And so an IA have to consider them as kind of a goalpost, guidepost, starting point, not an ending point. And, and, and of course, now we, we, as a result of that, over the last 15 years, we, we're now back to a, quite a bit of variation among judges within districts and among districts in terms of how similar cases get sentenced. And, you know, there's probably less concern about that nowadays, but you, every now and then you see somebody say, hey, is there something wrong with this? I mean, why does somebody get, you know, probation for this drug crime in the Eastern District of New York? And in, you know, the uh, District of Kansas, they get 20 years for pretty much the same crime. Does it make any sense? And I get that. And so it, so the pendulum kind of tends to swing back and forth on these things. And, and I guess to try to, to, to try to bring this back home, I mean, I could, we could have a system here in our district where you would know coming in that your case gets filed here, your summary judgment motion, your motion asking the judge to throw out the case or whatever is going to be due in 18 months, period. And that would be, completely predictable and completely consistent. And it would also be massively stupid um, because it wouldn't take account of the differences that might make one case or another different from that. So in the law, in the law, we have this constant tension. Now, I, I will say that our court, um, you know, to a certain extent gets criticized uh, for the variation and the way different judges handle cases. I just chalk that up to humanity. Um, you know, we, we used to have in the, in the old days, you know, personal injury lawyers, for example, on both sides would say, hey, wait a second, why should I be in federal court? If I'm in state court, I know my case is going to get, it's going to get above the line, as they used to call it in the, in the circuit court of Cook County, you know, three years and six months after the case gets filed. In federal court, if I get assigned to judge so-and-so, I'm going to get a trial date in nine months. If I get assigned to judge so-and-so, who knows if I'm going to get a trial date before he retires? Um, and, and, and that, those are problems and, but it's, it's kind of inherent, you know, you, you, anytime, anytime you, you try to smooth out the, 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 the variations in the graph, you're, you're going to leave some significant number of cases 
being treated in a way that people will consider unfair. And anytime you give more or less complete discretion to the person who's handling them, you're going to get the criticism completely legitimate that there's no predictability. And so what do I, what do I try to do? I mean, on my own, I'm, I, I can't deal with everybody else's universe. I do try to deal with my own universe. I try to deal with treat similar cases in a similar way as best I can, understanding that there's no th two things that are exactly alike. I do worry I mean, particularly from, I keep going back to sentencing, but it's the most serious thing we do around here. I, I, I do worry about those things. I mean, I sentence a person in one case to a, such and such a sentence, and then a case comes along six months later that seems kind of the same. And I think, man, I mean, I should impose a greater sentence here, but wait a second, six months ago, I gave this other sentence. I mean, can I really justify that to myself? And, you know, nobody on the court of appeals is going to come back and say, hey, Canelli, you sentenced so-and-so six months ago to a lower sentence, you know, explain the differences here. I mean, that doesn't work that way. But I think about it, and I think judges do think about those kinds of things and hopefully try to, um, you know, maintain some sort of internal consistency, at least on their own over, over time. You know, that's interesting. You know, I, I don't think enough about the criminal doctrine. I don't know enough about it. So, you know, because, you know, my litigation has always been civil. And so, something that I think is maybe desirable in a civil context with less desirable in a criminal context is uh, some aspect of unpredictability. I think, I think that's part of, I, I've always kind of felt that tacit to two parties in our litigation is saying, we understand there is a riskiness to this and we are hoping both of us facing this risk will drive us to resolution and settlement. Right. And so it's kind of curious to think about the ways in which, uh, in, in some ways, that unpredictability is a feature, not a bug. Oh, it's a feature for sure. It's it's a feature, and it's a feature in everything. I mean, as a lawyer, I I handled both civil and criminal cases, and I mean, I'm uh, you know the 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 calculus is different, and and the the consequences are different in the, in the two types of cases, but the same. The same um, uncertainty plays out in both. I mean, in, in, in the civil case, you know, you know, you could get a quote unquote runaway jury or you might get a judge who just has a complete antipathy to a particular type of case. And how's that going to affect things in a criminal case? You know, you don't know if you go to trial, is the judge going to think that this is a way worse case than you think it is now? Is it going to be treated differently if you plead, if you make a deal and so on and so forth? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a feature. It may also be a bug, but it's a feature. Well, going back to what you're saying, I think part of the active management that we're talking about and the benefits of consistency, um, you know, and the desire to be able to listen to parties and, and uh, take in circumstances, I think a key part of that and some that you've referenced a couple of times now is listening. And I think uh, I, I have a naive intuition about what listening is, but I imagine over time you've developed uh, better techniques for listening and facilitating communication with your forthright communication. So what are some of those techniques? Well, that part, part of it, part of it is filter. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of similarity between, particularly in the civil side, between case management and parenting. Okay. So, and you, you know, you, it's a, it's a combination of carrots and sticks and, and you have to listen, but not necessarily be swayed by, you know, somebody whining about this or that. And there's every bit as much whining by lawyers in civil cases as there is by four and five-year-olds. Not that I'm comparing the two necessarily, but yes, it does. At some level, you kind of think about it that way. Um, so, uh, you know, 
I, I, I can't say that I have a, you know, a template that I kind of try to, uh, you know, fit everything into, but um, I, I guess what I, what I, what I try to convey to people is, look, if you, if you pursue your case and what you have to do on your site in a diligent way, then you're way more likely to get leeway from me when you need more time or have a problem or need an exception or something like that. If, on the other hand, what you do is basically just ignore everything until a week, a week or two weeks before the deadline runs is about to run, and then you engage in this flurry of activity, and then you come in and say, oh, judge, you know, we just found out something. And and it, it turns out that the reason you just found it out, even though you've had 10 months to find it out, is you didn't do anything until three weeks ago. I'm probably going to have a little bit less leeway with you. And and now and that might sound, oh, geez, that's not really fair. But I try to I try to and I try to convey that to people kind of from the get go that that don't wait until the last minute. I mean, that that goes back to the thing I said about lawyers juggling. You know, every lawyer's got many, many, many deadlines that he or she has to deal with. And you're always constantly juggling. And. Um, what I think as a judge, I want to convey to people is that I get that. I get that you're going to have to juggle. I get that you're not going to be able to necessarily comply with deadlines, but I, I want you to, to treat the case as something that's significant and not something that just sits on the back burner until there's, you know, until the, the, until you start getting the warnings from Outlook saying you've got, you know, meeting day after tomorrow or something. So I think part of what you're talking about is, I think it also ties into you know, what you're saying in the context of uh, the lifetime tenure and some of the ways in which that insulates you, of course, from you know a lot of, of scrutiny or pressures of, of certain kinds. Uh, but then there's a concern about robitis. And so, so listening seems to be a, a key part of that as well. So what are the things that help you uh, understand the uh, considerations that law firms go through or clients go through? Like, what are the ways that you are staying grounded in getting good understanding of what's actually going on behind the scenes here? Okay. So, um, so part of it is, and I mean, I've been a judge for going on 22 years now, but it doesn't seem like that long. And I, and I did have a pretty a very active both civil and criminal practice. And so part of what I'm doing is trying to make sure that I don't lose touch with that and the understanding of the pressures and the multiple pressures that, that I was under at the time when I was a practicing lawyer and, and, and that I, that I take account of that when I'm, you know, managing a case. So that's, that's certainly, um, that's certainly part of it. Uh, part of it comes from, you know, I mean, you can you can kind of sit around here in an ivory tower or the equivalent, particularly now since there's nobody around, um, and just kind of, you know, um, go about your business and, and, and not pay any attention to anything. I try to stay involved in, you know, groups of lawyers, bar groups or what we call ends of court, things like that, where you're talking to lawyers regularly. And again, they're not necessarily going to come up to you and say, hey, judge, you know, you, the way you manage that case really stunk. That's not going to happen. But you you do learn things by staying up on, you know, what's going on in practice about what happens. So one big example uh, for, for me is that, you know, I, I became a judge in 1999. And 
electronic discovery as we all know it now pretty much didn't exist at that point. The digital revolution was just kind of starting to happen. It really hadn't affected litigation all that much. And I had no idea. I mean, I, I, I never had to deal with, you know, drafting search terms and protocols for ESI and things like that. And so, you know, what I've tried to do is thankfully the, you know, we, we have opportunities for continuing judicial education and not just that, but being on panels with lawyers. And it, you know, when you, you get asked by the local bar association to be on a panel about electronic discovery. I mean, from, for me, it's important not to just sit up there and pontificate, but to kind of listen to what people are saying because you learn a lot from that. And so I, I, I think that's part of it. Um, part of it comes and, and, and less about the practice ends, but about what's kind of happening in the world. It comes from the fact if you've, if you have, you know, we have, we are all high, allowed to hire law clerks, basically lawyers who, um, you know, assist us and, uh, and if you have what we call term law clerks, in other words, there's new people coming in every year, every couple of years, you, you know, that, that helps you kind of stay grounded in, in what's uh, going on. And then a lot of it, you just learn from cases. I mean, I, you know, I've, a lot of what I know about electronic discovery, I, I know from kind of learning it the hard way and having disputes presented to me and having to figure out what they're all about and listening to the lawyers and how does this work and how does that work and so on. So. One thing that you mentioned is, you know, this, you've mentioned in a couple of different ways is wanting, is getting honest feedback. Of course, you know, lawyers are all just going to laugh your jokes and, you know, not exactly walk up to you. Anything. By the way, I am actually quite funny. So, you know, so not all the laugh is fake. Uh, you uh, did have, I have to say there is, uh, there was one linen dinner where you uh, made remarks and it was very funny. It was objectively funny. So I, I, I have to give you that. So like one out of a hundred times I was actually funny. Okay. Yay. Well, so I still when... remember the joke and I don't remember, I mean, how many other, how many other lawyers have given the talk and I remember the joke. So that, I think that okay. is that's good. Um, well, so let's talk about that because I'm interested to know what kind of feedback do you wish you had? I mean, you know, like, yeah, so it's a, that's a really tough question. I mean, because it, it's going to be really hard to get anything good, you know. So every every now and then, this or that publication does evaluations of judges. So what does that end up being? And and it you know it's it it, it kind of depends on how they go about doing it. So we we've had an organization here locally that at various points in time has reviewed judges both on the state and federal level. Not all that often because it's a massive undertaking. If you're going to do it. So, I mean, obviously you can, you know, there's, I suppose somewhere, although I don't go looking for it, the judicial equivalent of Yelp reviews, probably, you know, judgesajerk.com or something like that, where people can kind of post all their gripes, but that's, that's largely going to be all the negative information and who knows how much of it is tainted by the fact that the person lost the case and they're just ticked off about that. Um, so what you what you what you'd ideally would get would be some, you know, sort of more broader sampling of um, done in in a fairly systematic way um, that told judges, you know, what's what do people think of your case management style and not just graded on a scale of one to ten. Doesn't tell you anything like what's good, what's bad, what's indifferent. Um, how does, you know, how are you when you preside over trials? Or do, do people think they're being treated fairly even if they lose? I mean, there's, there's ways that people 
in kind of high level professions can get evaluated, but there's really not anybody out there doing it on, a, on any kind of a regular basis. And honestly, because it's hard, it's hard to do. And it's, if you're going to do it right, it's really hard to do it right. And, um, and, and not have it just be, you know, a series of gripe sessions, or on the other hand, a series of, you know, suck up sessions. Um, so, but that, that's, you know, if, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, a local bar association did a, you know, it's every 25 years or whether we need to or not a review of federal judges. And there, I found some helpful stuff in there. Not, not some of it, not all of it great. And, um, uh, and I, you know, try to take it to heart and some of which you, you know, zebra can't change their stripes, but, uh, um, but yeah, it's just not happening. It's just not happening. And we don't have, we, we don't have, uh, and, and again, probably because it would be so difficult to do. We don't have, like you would have at a big corporation, somebody who's doing kind of a regular review of you. Like how, who would do that and how would they do it? I have no idea. I mean, somebody could figure it out, but uh, how to do it, but it would have to be its own kind of apparatus. Um, and anything that, anything that comes from the government costs, costs money and somebody has got to pay for it. And uh, there's no, real desire to pay for it. Now, you know, as a federal judiciary, we get criticized from time to time, not having kind of an ombudsman or something like that. But that tends to be about the sort of really egregious type of situations like, you know, um, people making racist, gender biased comments, um, you know, corruption, quasi-corruption, things like that, and um, kind of the, the outlier cases. And every time you have one of those, somebody says there needs to be kind of a, an inspector general or something like that. But you know, we got, I don't know what it, the number is, like 500 federal district judges around the country. I mean, how are you going to evaluate all those people? It's really tough. Who's going to do it? How, how are they going to put together the study? It's, it would have to be a, a significant number of people, kind of that would be their whole job. And we just don't have it. Well, let's say in a fancy land, and I, you've drafted many local rules. So let's say you draft a local rule requiring counsel to give feedback, you know, at the end of uh, resolution of litigation. So what are, what's a couple questions that you would put in there? Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking about the last thing I time I got something from, from uh, you, you could do, you could do the hotels.com kind of smiley face, sad no. face. How, how was that experience? That's not helpful at all. I mean, I, you know, you ask a question like that and I suppose I could think of something and I, and I'm a lawyer. I immediately start thinking about why this would be a waste of time because, you know, if, if the experience was okay or, you know, um, or even positive, I mean, how many people are going to do that if the experience is negative? I mean, you know, by definition in my job, half the people go away dissatisfied or if, if I have to decide a case and how would you know whether, you know, the fact that a person lost is tainting their decision, uh, taint, tainting their, um, their evaluation. I, I'm not sure. Well, that, that's why, that's why I say yeah. I think it would have to be done on a systematic basis by somebody who knows how to, you know, filter evaluations and, and try to try to control for, you know, dissatisfaction with the outcome in, in, in evaluating the process, because the process is what you want to get evaluated on. I mean, I, I get I get evaluated on whether my decisions are good or not by the Court of Appeals, I guess. You know, it's a small number of percentage, small percentage of cases that are appealed, but that's an evaluation of sorts. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the process. 
Yeah, so I was straight answers. I don't know. Well, I, I yeah, I was uh, my take on that is let's say I resolve the procedural hurdles to getting compliance, and now we're just in a world where you can get compliance, you can get the information. I, I, I suppose we could focus on that. Yeah. Well, so what I'd want what I'd want to know is did you did you did you feel you had a chance to make your point? Did you feel that the that the, that the judge listened to your point? Did you feel that the judge took your views into account? Not did you like the outcome? Um, uh, I mean, I, that, like I say, the appellate process works for that. Um, were, were, you know, was there things that the judge did that you think were, you know, counterproductive, um, um, uh, things that the judge did that you thought were particularly productive or helpful? Um, but, you know, the, you know, a series of, a series of the kinds of things you get on your average, you know, web interview where it's like rate this on a scale of one to 10. I mean, that's just... It's not great. You need something. You need specific stuff. I mean, I because I'll, I'll just tell you, like when I, like I said before, I, you know, after I got appointed and before I started, I went around and talked to maybe a dozen judges in our district about, you know, their techniques and for this, that, and the next thing. You know, how do you pick a jury? How do you do this? How do you do that? And I got to tell you, with with maybe one or two exceptions. First of all, they all had different ways of doing things, and they all said, and the lawyers love the way I do it. And I and I and I had to hold my tongue on about half of them because I wanted to say no, we don't, because I knew we didn't. But I'm not going to say that, and nobody else did either, and that's why they all thought that everything was copacetic. And so that's what you get. And and so um, you know, to, but getting the opposite of that is like you know this person's an ogre, you know, which is what which is what web interviews or web uh, reviews you know often descend into. Um, not, again, not helpful. I mean, except at some very general level. So you, you need you need something detailed about, you know, what was what was. Did you, did you feel like you get got treated fairly? Did you feel like you had an opportunity to make your points? Did you feel like the judge actually considered your points? If not, why don't you think that? What do you think could have been done differently? What what was good? And I mean, you could design if you were you know good at this kind of thing, which I'm not. Um, you could design a, a survey that would that would work, um, I think, at some level, and then you'd have to get people to do it. You know, it'd have to be a sufficient compliance rate among the lawyers and the litigants to, um, so that you're not just getting kind of the the outliers on one side or another, the people that think that you walk on water and the people that think that you, you know, you, you walk around with a pitchfork or something. But, um, yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And yes, I've seen, I think, some of the kinds of websites you're describing. And yeah, they, unfortunately, with this pool of uh, information, I think it tends to be uh, a lot of disgruntled people currently is is the, you know, is the closest thing of rating. And it's not unique to judges. There's other, oh, sure. what you see, like, you know, with, with, I think, doctors, I feel like if you go, right. it's mostly negative reviews. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I understand that, but I, I think that is an interesting problem to be solved. Well, going back to you were talking earlier about. And I would say, let me just say the logical, it, it, this, this is not going to get done by, we're the government. Okay. This isn't going to get done by the government itself. It's just, there's no, there's no appetite or money to put the resources into it. If it's going to get done. It's going to get done by bar associations. That's who does this kind of thing. And, and the problem with it is it's a massive, if, if you're in a place that's got big courts like we do, it's a massive undertaking. It could be very much a full-time job and the resources that you'd have to commit to it are, are if you're going to do it right in a way that's helpful. In other words, you're not just trying to, you know, you're not just trying to, you know, to wave the red flag in front of the people you hate, you're trying to give people helpful feedback. 
it, it, it's a very massive undertaking, I think, or at least could be. Yeah. Anyway, sorry for interrupting. No, that, that's, that's uh, a good point. Um, so going back, you know, we, we started this conversation talking about how judges are this kind of last bastion of the generalists. And I'm interested in that for a variety of reasons. I, that, that's what it seems to me. And that's something that's fascinating about the role. Uh, you know, maybe some CEOs, if you're Jeff Bezos and your company touches on so many aspects of society that you are seeing wide swath of society through that role as well. Uh, but I think something that, that interests me about the role is, you know, we talked in, I think, in context of being this, this generalist and the variety of uh, the docket that you have, there's some, there's some uh, that necessarily entails case management and then the case management techniques you have. Maybe we can go into a little more substantively. So by virtue of being this generalist, you have to get an understanding of so many different kinds of subject matter. So what are the patterns of digesting this information and, and, you know, honing in on the things that matter, you know, because it's inconceivable that you're spending, you know, every, you know, you're, you're trying to master every single detail and nuance. There has to be some things that are naturally more important than others and things that you've learned to hone in on. And so can we talk some more about some of the techniques underlying the substantive aspect of, drinking from this fire hose and processing it. Yeah. I mean, and I wish I could reduce that to a formula, but I really can't. I mean, you know, it's one of the things that if you, if you, as a lawyer, as a practicing lawyer, if you have any kind of a complex practice at all, one of the things you learn is that you have to be able to filter out what's important from what's unimportant. I mean, if you're working for a, you know, a thousand lawyer firm that only defends Fortune 50 companies, then maybe you don't have to have that filter because you can do everything for everybody all the time because they'll pay for it. But in most legal practices, you have to develop, you have to develop the skill of being able to figure out what's important. And honestly, you don't always get it right. Um, and and I, I think that's true even now. So you're right. I mean, drinking from a fire hose is probably a pretty good analogy for what I do. Um, and, you know, Today, I might be dealing with a complicated patent dispute about, um, you know, some sort of chemical formula. Um, and tomorrow, I may be dealing with the question of whether a person who's charged with a crime and mentally ill is competent to stand trial. And the next day, I might be dealing with um, some complicated question of insurance law and interpreting, you know, very complicated language and insurance policies. And and it's like you're going from one thing to another. And, and for, for, I think for most of us in this job, that's kind of the great thing about the job. You're not doing anything the same way twice. But, um, you, know, uh, you know, jack of all trades probably means master of none. And, 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 that's, and I mean, that's certainly true. Um, I, I wish I could. I wish I could reduce this to some kind of a formula because it's pretty. It's a pretty common question. I mean, I speak to law school classes and things like that. Yes, you get asked a similar question, and I mean, it's 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 the same way people kind of figure out other things. You you read and you listen and you read and you listen and you think and you set it aside and you come back and and you know if you have to issue a decision, you start writing a decision. If it doesn't work, you set it aside or you go the other way and. Um, and, and, and I, I, I'd like to say, I mean, I, I, one of my, I clerked for a federal district judge like me, you know, 40 years ago. And one of the, one of my co-clerks, um, was somebody who, it was completely brilliant. And, and the way he would 
you know, go about deciding and drafting decisions. It it was all somehow getting done in his head. And then he'd just start making outlines on a paper and it would flow from one to the next. Like, I, I think I'm a reasonably intelligent person. I could never do that. I mean, for me, it's it's almost like trial and error. And, and what I actually tell people, I mean, I speak to a class regularly of um, judicial interns in law school. So these are law students, usually first or second year, who are working for a judge and kind of acting as junior law clerks and helping the judge decide cases and writing memos. And you know, I tell them, you know, what's going to happen when you're working on an assignment is, is you're going to read one side's submission. You're going to say, wow, that sounds really persuasive. And then you're going to read the other side's submission. You're going to say, wow, that sounds really persuasive. And then you're going to read the, f- the first side's response to that. And you're going to say, wow, that sounds really persuasive. Now what the hell do I do? And, and the first thing I tell people is don't panic because that happens to me too. And I've been a lawyer for 40 years and a judge for 21. It's normal. It's supposed to work that way. If it was that easy to decide, I wouldn't need to have you work on it. Um, and, and, and so, you, you know, you, you work through those problems the same way people work through problems in life. As you, you think about it, you listen, you, you try to work it out, you see if the resolution works. If it doesn't work, you try something else. And, the, the, and, and in the long run, I mean, what I tell people is, look, this is, this is what you do if, if, if all else fails. I mean, you've, you've sat there and you've reasoned it out and you've outlined and you've tried to go from point A to point B to point C to point D. And you still get to a point where you've got to decide between two competing visions of of how something should come out and you can't figure out how to do it so i say look there's a do what i do um that because that happens to me happened to me you know two days ago all right on something and like i say i'm in my 41st year as a lawyer so i say okay i can't figure this out and i've I've reached the point now where i just can't keep tossing it around in my mind i got to make a decision so i'm going to say okay this side wins i'm going to start writing it that way and i start writing the decision and if you're if you're thinking about it in a logical way, and if you're is the math as your math teachers used to say, if you're showing your work and you're 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 and you're going through all the steps, if that's the wrong decision, at some point you're going to hit a wall, and you're going to know that you hit the wall, and you're going to say, you know what, let's this should come out the other way. And if you never hit that wall, it probably means it's the right way. And one way or another, the process of just having to commit it to writing is going to help you decide it. And that's what I have found. And so I have to deal with, you're right. I mean, I deal with stuff that I I don't know. I don't know the first thing about, um, you know, what's I'm, I'm dealing with a patent case right now about um, um, MRI technology. All I know about MRI technology is sitting in one of those machines and having it be real loud. That's all I know about it. Um, And so I, you know, I, I'm not a I'm not a neurologist. I'm not a uh, a person who designs MRI machines. I'm not a radiologist. I'm not any of those things. But I, I, I one of the things I've learned over the course of 40 years of practicing in areas that I, I I didn't know the underlying subject matter and being a judge is that you know you just do your best to um, it, at some level everything is there's a logic to everything and you just kind of got to figure out where it is and you read as much as you can and you learn as much as you can and you try to make sure that you you know, hope that you know as much as anybody in the room, or at least have read as much as anybody in the room, and do your best, and um, and hope that it, and try to make it make sense from a common sense standpoint. And if it does, there's a good chance it's going to be right. Is there a division of labor, or I don't know if this is the way you think about it, but I wonder if you see uh, a difference between understanding the case and then deciding the case, and if you do, is one more challenging than the other? Um. 
Yeah, I'm not sure that there's a there's a real dichotomy between the two things because you have to have some understanding of it to be able to decide it. I mean, because the, the the if you don't, it's basically amounts to a kind of a glorified exercise in coin flipping, uh, which you really don't want to do. And you know, I don't think I think everybody tries not to do. Uh, so you you have to have some level of understanding, and and so I I think they really kind of go hand in hand. Um, it's um. Yeah, I guess what I meant is those are probably two phases, and I wondered if you felt, you know, first oh, I you see, and then you decide, and I wondered if you felt like one phase is more difficult than the other. Yeah, so um, I, I guess I guess my pushback would be I'm not sure they're distinct phases. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think for me, I think they kind of happen at the same time, and that may go back to the I love Lucy analogy. They kind of have to. Mm. I, I don't. I don't have the luxury of saying okay. I'm going to put everything aside for the next two weeks and just do this. I mean, I guess I do that in a sense when I'm like, I have a trial going on, but even then there's before and after and, and I have to do other stuff during the lunch break and things like that. I really don't have the luxury of saying, okay, there's only one problem in the world. I'm going to deal with it except for little chunks of time. I mean, when I'm working on this, I'm not working on that obviously, but I don't have, I don't think, and, and this is one of the differences I think between what, trial judges do and what appellate level judges do is you do not generally speaking you don't have the either the resources or the time given the relative volumes to spend overwhelming amounts of time on a single thing on the other hand except when you have to which is you know the exception that proves the rule so every now and then you get something, and I had one last uh, spring, um, where it's a kind of, this is more important than anything else you're doing. You got to drop everything and just work on this for two weeks. And I mean, that happens every now and then, but uh, it's it's relatively rare and at, at my level at least. Yeah, I think, you know, for my time, you know, externing for, you know, two judges in law school and you know, my experience in court, I have an understanding that a huge part of a federal judge's job is being efficient with time, like you're describing. And, you know, I, I, I think now talking about more enhanced understanding what that looks like, but, you know, with it, and it's, I think it's kind of interesting because I think uh, so few people associate government with efficiency, but I, I think that this is one of the roles where, you know, government has to be very efficient and is by, by uh, convention or standard. So how I'm interested in applications. So how do you decide? I, I think at some level we understand that you know this patent case you're describing will require some level of more time spent understanding and deciding than say uh, a very simple yes. you know slip and fall case. And so how you know can you give us some sense of the heuristics you're using to allocate your time and energy to the cases based on say their their complexity or yeah. Yeah, I want to think about that for a second. So, so um, you know, there's there's a bunch of different kind of tracks going at the same time. So I've got stuff that's being that parties are submitting written submissions on that has to be decided. I've got kind of the day to day stuff that I'm kind of deciding at the snap of a finger at the blink of an eye, which tends to be the sort of less consequential things that are not terribly complicated. I've got the longer term stuff that you know. I know that this case has a trial date and such and such a date. So whatever I'm going to do before that has to happen before that, unless I want to move the trial date. And then I'm going to have, then I have this trial and there's all this stuff that I'm going to have to do around the trial. 
So it's, it's for, for, for me and, you know, I, I guess I consider myself organized, but maybe in a disorganized way, um, if that makes any sense that, that I, it's, you know, to a certain extent, it's, it's not that the squeaky wheel gets the grease. It's that the wheel that is about to go over the cliff has got to get the grease or has got to get the brake. I, you know, I'm just mixing my metaphors there. Um, and, um, and so, and so a lot of the kind of sorting out of what I'm going to work on on a given ba- on a given day, um, is kind of depend on what's the most pressing at the moment. So I'm like, a, I'm like anybody else. I may go into work with a list of eight things that I really want to get those eight things done today. And if I get two of them done, I think, my God, this was a massive win. I got two, two out of my eight things done. How did I decide it was those two? Well, okay. So today, for example, um, I, I had a, a hearing on a case that had to happen at a certain amount of time, at, at a certain point in time, and yeah, I'm I'm the judge, so I could move the hearing, but I I didn't, and so there was certain stuff that I had to get done before this morning, so I could be ready for that hearing. Um, there's, um, you know, I've got, um, uh, you know, next week I'm on a committee that's uh, I've got to give a presentation at a meeting, and so. You know, before that meeting, which I don't have any control over, it's scheduling. I'm going to have to set aside a certain amount of time to get ready to present at that meeting. So a lot of it is just kind of that simple. It's whatever happens to be most pressing. And then, but then what you have to do, kind of in the background, and 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 again, there's people, there are, there are j- trial judges who are more or less directly involved in this themselves. But what I'm also doing is in kind of, as I put it in the background kind of making sure that the 30 new cases I got last month, that something's happening in those cases that, you know, deadlines are being set or somebody's being told, okay, you're going to have a case management conference on such and such a date. So that everything has, I, what, what I, what I try to do. And one of the things that, again, one of the things I learned from, you know, other people when I started the job was try to make sure that everything has some sort of a date or a deadline. Because the last thing you want to have happen is to have stuff start slipping through the cracks. Now you can always move the date of the deadline, but make sure everything has one. And and so then it then a lot of it becomes kind of a, honestly kind of it's really mundane. I know kind of an exercise. And okay, I got all these deadlines. Which are the ones that I can move? Which are the ones that I can't move? Which are the ones that I really really can't move? Because this is really really got to be done right now. So for example, you know during the last ten months, eleven months because of the pandemic and because of, um, you know, some changes in the law, we now have as district judges, the authority to do what some people call a second look on sentences. And so we've gotten this flood of requests from people who are in prison that I've put in prison or that some judge who's now retired put in prison and I got assigned their case saying, I'm going to die in here. Let me out. And I've done enough time. And obviously those things are more pressing. They have to go to the top of the list. Now, do all of them go to the very top of the list? No, they don't. Sometimes they sometimes they don't. Sometimes you may look at that and say, you know, maybe not right now, but maybe in another six months I'd consider this. So maybe you put that on the back burner. So there's some things that kind of naturally have to go to the top of the list. I had this big case last spring that involved, um, again, uh, the, the pandemic and how that was affecting people in the in a local jail. And because of the way that was presented to me, that that was a drop everything, all hands on deck, everything's got to stop for the next X number of weeks so that we can get this decided. And so some of the prioritization is happening that way. And and so, 
so I, I, I wish I could tell you that I could hear, I'm going to turn the camera around and there's my flow chart on the wall. It tells, I don't, I don't have anything like it would be, it would be crazy. It would be crazy looking. It would be one of like one of those, you know, uh, cop shows on TV where they go into the crazy person's basement and they've got like 500 things up on the wall with strings between them. That's what it would look like. So it, and it would be scary and, and, and probably not a good thing for anybody to see. <laughs> Uh, well, it seems like that's a funny way to put it. I'm sure there's some things that are more systematized, uh, about it. Yeah. It, I think that's such a, well, yes. Thing. Okay. There are sure there are. Yeah. So X number of days after a case is going to, a case comes in, I need to make sure that I have set a deadline for somebody to get that case going. You know, when a criminal case comes in, particularly if the person's in custody, when the first time they come in, I'm actually going to set that case, criminal case for trial because with criminal cases, there need, we need to know that there's an end date. Um, you know, with, um, if I, if I have a case that I know is going to go to trial, there's certain things that have to happen before the trial. And I know what all those are, and I'm going to set deadlines for all of those, everything else that tends to be more, you know, more, uh, case dependent or situation dependent. One thing that I, I haven't got a sense of is I, I imagine the answer is yes, you do enjoy this, but do you enjoy writing opinions? Yeah, I do. I, and I don't all, I don't, I don't. So we, as I said before, we have law clerks and again, they're lawyers who basically um, act as the judge's lawyer. As, as the judge's lawyer, you know, you're advising the client, namely the judge on how he or she should decide a case. They help us, you know, filter stuff, you know, come up with recommended decisions and, you know, different judges have a different degree of involvement in that process. Um, I actually do some of the decision writing completely by myself without law clerks and part of that is because, you know, I may have two law clerks working on this really super complicated stuff that I don't want to pull them off of that I really don't want to do from scratch myself. And then, then there's this other thing going on over here. And I've just realized that that's got to get decided in the next week. So I say, fine, I'm going to do that myself. Sometimes it's just because I like to. And I mean, for me, the process of kind of solving a difficult problem, that's, that's one, it was one of the more satisfying things about practicing law for me and one of the more you know satisfying things as a judge is kind of working your way through a difficult problem and trying to come up with a just and reasonable resolution for it. Do you have a favorite literary reference that you've inserted into opinion? No. Although I have to, I, I will say that I, that I quoted, um, I, I referred to um, Bob Beeman in the 1968 Olympics the other day. And um, and I and I actually on the phone yesterday quoted Hyman Roth from The Godfather, where he where he says to Michael Corleone, "This is the business we've chosen, not this is the life we've chosen." That's the way it commonly gets quoted. This is the business we've chosen. I said that to a very successful, um, very skilled criminal defense lawyer who always has too much to do and was basically complaining he wasn't going to have enough time between some other trial and my trial. And I basically said, I'm going to quote Hyman Roth from The Godfather. This is the business you've chosen. That's very impressive. I'm a big fan of Godfather too. And that's not the line I would have plucked out of thin air if I was going to make a reference to it. So that's that's a good uh, insider one. Well, I actually did see your, your, uh, your baseball uh, uh, line because actually it was profiled in Doc and Navigator. I don't know if you knew that, but... Uh, Say what? It, oh, In okay. Doc and Navigator, yeah. So... Uh, well, that's kind of funny. You know, I think something that'll be interesting to pick up on that you were talking about earlier, it, I think we've talked about it in a couple of different ways, but I, I think you've really underscored the experiences you had before you were on the bench. They're distinct 
um, practice you had where you had both a similar criminal, criminal docket. And so you really touched on so many kinds of matters and really gave you uh, a really broad understanding of what the rule entailed. And I, I, you know, I just think that's a, it sounds like that's a unique experience that not many other judges had. So can we talk a little bit about, you know, the impact of the diversity of experiences someone has, and we can talk about diversity as broadly as yeah. we can, you know, beyond substantive, we can talk about backgrounds as well. So what are the ways that you feel that, you know, diversity of all kinds is beneficial to the bench and, and what are the things to do to facilitate that? Well, so, you know, n- n- no one person can be completely diverse by him or herself. Um, and so when you talk about having a diverse bench, not everybody is, you know, there's that, that means that you have this person from this background and this person from that background and so on. Um, the, the, the theory, at least part of the theory, kind of the looking out theory or one part of the theory is that, is that to the extent that judges learn from each other, if you have that diversity of experience, then um, uh, then judges will be able to learn from people with various perspectives. Now, how much judges pick up and learn from each other, I think is, there's no systematized way for that to happen. Um, we have, um, you know, a couple of the judges on our court in recent years have reinstitutionalized something that existed back in the 80s, early 80s, when I was a law clerk, which had to do with sentencing. You know, I keep coming back to sentencing, but again, the most difficult and probably most consequential thing that we do as judges. Um, and and the way it works is that uh, we have a meeting every Monday and uh, over lunch, and any judge in this group, and the group can be as any judge in, in the court, can submit a, a case um, for, you know, that they're going to have a sentencing hearing in and you submit all the paperwork, you know, the, what we call the pre-sentence report, the party's sentencing briefs, whatever else you've got, you submit it to them and everybody else looks at it. And the, and, and then we kind of go around the room and each judge, or I guess around the, not around the room, around the zoom, I guess at this point, and, and each judge um, kind of says, well, this is what I think about this case. And this is the sentence that I would impose in my, if it were my case, and here's why I would do that. And you kind of go around the room and you get different perspectives. And so when, when the, um, when this got reinstituted, I mean, there had been various efforts over the years to do this. This is something that existed when I was a law clerk. So back in the early eighties, there was a regular group that would actually meet in my judges office every Monday afternoon because he was the most senior of this group. And that's what they do exactly the same thing. Um, there were, and it kind of fallen away and particularly with the mandatory sentencing guidelines, it had kind of fallen away because it didn't matter as much anymore. And um, there had been some efforts over the year to reinstitute it. And my concern would be, well, if you needed to have a, a sufficient diversity of views and backgrounds and attitudes on this group for it to be meaningful. Otherwise it's all just going to drive in one direction, either one way or another. And I think we've kind of, got that at this point um we've tried to it's it's a it's a good um um uh, tool if you will for as we have new judges come on our court you know not everybody has had experience in the criminal field and even those that have haven't sentenced anybody and and we've kind of in a as part of our orientation we've kind of marketed it to the new judges like you really should come join this group and it's beneficial. And, um, and I mean, like I said, I've been doing this 21 years and I, I still find it beneficial, um, even though I've sentenced, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people over the years. So um, 
Now I've, now I've completely forgotten what your question is, but I think that was a response to it. Do you remember what your question was? Oh, that's a good question. Um, oh, I got you there. So both of us forgot your question. All right. Well, here's how I'd put it. I, I was open at the floor to talk about diversity in a broad way. Yeah, uh, diversity. Okay. So then my point, my point there was that if you have judges from different backgrounds and they are communicating with each other, then that's beneficial because I'm going to see how somebody who was a career prosecutor looked at this case. And I'm going to see how somebody who's a career defense lawyer looked at this case. I'm going to see how somebody who's a career civil litigator who didn't do any, uh, who didn't, didn't do any criminal cases looks at this case. Uh, somebody from, you know, who comes from this walk of life or that walk of life. So, for, so internally, if there are judges, and thank God we have a couple in our court who've kind of kept this thing going, um, not myself, other people. Um, uh, if, if you have judges who are willing to kind of create those mechanisms and, and, and keep them running in, in some sort of um, systematized way, you, you have that kind of feedback. So that's one aspect of diversity. The other aspect is, I mean, it's kind of the obvious. It's, it's you don't... Um, you know, and, and again, particularly in the criminal field, um, if, you know, a, a person of color, um, you know, comes out of the uh, the holding cell at the side and the whole courtroom is full of old white men, it, it kind of gives you a bad feeling uh, is that person. And, um, and, and yeah, I mean, some of the judges are going to be old white men, but not all of them have to be and not all of them should be. And, um, uh, and, and so from a public facing standpoint that as a court, if we, you know, to, you know, to kind of quote a hackneyed old phrase, if we look like America, that's, that's going to be good in terms of public confidence in the judicial system, that it's a, it's a diverse group of people, you know, that are out there resolving your disputes and not just a bunch of rich guys that, you know, are dabbling in this in their twilight years. Uh, yeah, I think there's a bunch of ways we can jump off that. But one way I want to jump off it is you've mentioned several times about, you know, the difficult nature of sentencing uh, and some of the changes with the second look, you know, the opportunities that this has given before reflection. And so one question I have for you is, what is difficult? I've got an intuitive sense about what's difficult. You know, it's difficult to, you know, send someone to prison and then maybe it's difficult to determine how much it is based on factors like you're talking about as does this person have a family? You know, did this person contribute to society in some other way? So that's intuitive, but what are some things yep. that people don't So the thing, that's, the thing that's difficult about it is, is like, like many things we do as judges, it's a question that doesn't have a right answer. It doesn't have a right answer. There's nobody that can come and say that, they can come and say with a straight face that for this, this is the right sentence. There's many answers to that question. And, um, and, and that's part of what makes it difficult. The other part of what makes it difficult is that, you know, you're standing there looking at this person and you're looking at all of what's behind them and you're looking at their victims. If it's a case of, if it's a crime that has victims and you're thinking about how does this affect all of these people, not just this person here, but, his family, his victims, um, you know, other, you know, other people who might be affected by it. And, um, and then, and then it, it's also difficult from the, from the standpoint that, that, you know, it's, it's very easy to say, you know, just bang the gavel. Although by the way, nobody has ever done that bang the gavel in the entire time that I have been a lawyer and a judge. I've never seen anybody, any judge bang a gavel except on TV. 
Um, but but you, you know it's very easy to just to go out there figuratively bang the gavel and say you know 20 years. But if 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 you're if if, you, if there's any kind of level of humanity in you, you have to understand that that's that's a meaningful thing that you you th- you think about. Okay. Um, what I'm doing here is I'm saying that for the next X, this person is going to live in a cell. Everything they do is going to be watched. Everything they do is going to be controlled. They're not going to be able to leave. Even if it's a so-called uh, club fed, there's a fence on the outside. They can't go away. Uh, they, they can't pick what they want to eat for lunch. They can't pick when they're going to have a shower. They can't pick whether they're going to have a shower. They can't, you know, decide that I'm going to go up the street and get a cup of coffee. They can't say, well, I'm going to go out, you know, and jog five miles right now because it's not your time and, you know, in the yard or whatever. And, and, you know, you, it's a, it's a very consequential thing. And so if, if you think about any of that, um, is one um, of our more senior judges, you know, once said is like any if you're doing it right, any sentencing takes a little bit out of you, and um, and it does. So and, and 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 if you're doing it right, means that if you're if you're really thinking about all that stuff, now you're also thinking about the victim, and you're also thinking about the future victims. If they're you know if this is somebody who you think might do something again, you got to think about all that stuff, and it's a it, it and and it's like I say, it's a, it's something that doesn't have a right answer. Um, it, it did, I guess, when we had mandatory sentencing guidelines, which is why I say in some, in my view, perverse way, it was easier then. Um, but it's, it, you know, there's no training. They, they do courses in sentencing. They do, but, you know, they can't tell you that, how to, you know, what's the right sentence for the guy who just, you know, robbed, gave somebody a note saying, if you don't uh, give me all the money, I'm going to blow your head off. And what's the right sentence for that? I don't know. Is it five years, is it 10 years, is it 20 years, is it a year and a half? Is it probation with a lot of, you know, mental health counseling and drug counseling? I don't know. So you it mentioned, depends. So. It depends. So you mentioned yeah. that, uh, you know, this, this kind of premise of, you know, if you're doing it right, it takes something out of you. Uh, so then what recharges you? What is it that sustains you? What, what aspect of the role, you know, is it, and I wonder if it's, you know, there's different ways to answer this. Maybe one way to answer it is, is it, something about the substantive aspect of the work? Is it something about how you see it affects the parties? Is it something about how you feel this affects the uh, public in general and, and how justice is administered? Is it something about how, you know, you interact with your team? I mean, what, what are the things that... Yeah, I mean, that, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of those things. I mean, I think in, in part, it's, it's, the, it's the knowledge and the awareness that you're important you're 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 carrying out this very important public function that's necessary for uh, our type of society to continue to exist uh, so that we're not just fighting all these things out in the street somewhere um i think it's you know the the the, the satisfaction with having done a thoughtful and thorough job on whatever it is that you're working on i think it's you know the on a completely different level the ability to you know to supervise and shepherd and and um and mentor um you know younger lawyers who who work for you um it's it's uh um you know it's a lot of things like that so it's not any one thing it's a lot of things but um i mean it is it is a satisfying job it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that every moment of it is fun a lot of it's not 
So you talked about, you know, the, when we're talking about diversity earlier, you were talking about the importance of the public facing component of the judge's role. And, you know, something that is strange about the role of a federal judge compared to uh, counterparts in other branches of government is, you know, counterparts in the executive branch, the cabinet, uh, or the legislative branch, you know, there's plenty of attention on senators and congresspeople. So, you know, in relative terms, district court judges are infinitely smaller amount of attention put on them. I mean, I think, you know, if we walked on, you know, uh, if we walked on Jackson Avenue right in front of Dirksen and asked people, can you name one federal judge? Uh, You know, I'd be curious to see what the survey results are. So is that, I'm curious, I guess at initial level, we can just talk about how does that make you, what's your reaction to that? Is that something that is, we can use feature or bug as, as a construct or, you know, as an initial impression, you know, what do you think about the fact that an individual district court judge gets so little attention, comma, scrutiny? Well, I'll tell you what, I mean, I think that part of that is, you know, we're, we're, we're very geographically specific here. So you, you, you and I live in a city where, like I said, there's on my court, there's 45 or so judges. And then in the same building, there's, you know, 15 or 20 bankruptcy judges. And in the same building, there's another 15 or so appellate judges. And, you know, I'm not going to say we're a dime a dozen, but there's a lot of us. And so does, you know, there's, there's a few people that somebody may say, oh yeah, I know about uh, Richard Posner or something like that. Um, You know, because, because of the, you know, they're a more prominent person, but you know, if, if I'm in, you know, small town USA, that it's a one judge court, I don't know. Maybe the maybe the local federal judge in that town is somebody that everybody knows who they are, and when they walk down the street, some people say "Top of the morning" to you, judge, and you know, tip their tip their hats or whatever. Um, so I think part of it is that. Um, I you know I I think aside from that though the you know we we don't get recognized, but but we. I really think that of the branches of government, what we do is way more transparent than any of them because we have to explain our decisions. Like when representative so-and-so is voting on this bill or that bill, he doesn't have to issue a written opinion saying why I voted on it. I do. There's a rule that says I do. Um, and I, so I have to explain it. And, um, and, and, and largely what we do happens in the, in the open, there's no backroom meetings with lobbyists, not that I'm critical of that, but um, there's no backroom meetings with lobbyists. It's all happening on a record. Somebody's taken it down. Uh, it's illegal for somebody to have a separate meeting with you. So we're, we're much more transparent than, than I think any of the other, um, you know, arms of government in, in that way. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, I mean, does somebody know who this or particular judge is? No, but they, they, they know that we have this system out there that, you know, they're reading about every day, which somewhere somebody says, yeah, okay, I'm letting this person out on bond or I'm not. And here's why. And you get to, I mean, if you're paying attention, you get to see all that stuff. And it's, I mean, that's a, to, to me, that's a, it's a terrific feature of the, uh, and that's just to me, to everybody, it's a terrific feature of the system that it's that it's all done in this very transparent way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't care if I get recognized walking down the street or not. I mean, I, I think in some ways that's it's kind of a good thing because half the people would be saying, well, that was a boneheaded decision you issued in that personal injury case the other day. What the hell were you thinking about when you did that? Um, Isn't so, that, that feedback you said you wanted? 
Not that, no, because that's not the organized, systematized, you know, analysis. That's just somebody, you know, uh, reacting to, you know, what they saw on Twitter um, or whatever. But uh, um, I mean, that wouldn't be bad either. I mean, I could, but the problem is I can't talk about it with them. So I, I just say, like, that, thank you very much. Nice to see you. And just like, let me get out of here <laughs> really fast. It's interesting because I, I think a recurring theme that we're talking about is the benefits and the consequences or the drawbacks of judges being these kind of, as you're saying, these like individual law firms or however you want to put them, uh, you know, there's benefits to this, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom kind of approach. Uh, but then also maybe it seems to me some missed opportunities for making things more efficient and systematic and fair, possibly uh, recognizing that we, you know, some of the nuance we talked about that, you know, uh, different matters require but then also, I think it ties into, uh, you know, the issue of, broadly speaking, of, of overseeing judicial conduct. So you're referencing, you know, the lack of something like an ombudsman uh, or inspector uh, general kind of uh, aspect. And that, that so much of the regulation of judicial conduct happens to the appellate mechanism. But you're also noting earlier that there's any number of decisions you make that are, you know, almost insulated right. from that. Given the level That's true. You know the um, the amount of uh, deference given. So it seems to me that you know something we're talking about in a variety of contexts, say intra northern district between uh, litigants in the court, between the public and the court. It seems like there's some maybe missed opportunities for feedback loops to get more information. Uh, you know, it ties even into you know your comment about avoiding robitis. So. Yeah, it seems to me that that this not exactly uh, you know we're not you know, we're not going to come up with a solution right now. It, it's a there's you know definitely a lot of nuance to the problem, but um, kind of the, the the theme I should say. But uh, yeah, I'm just curious about you know the ways in which you think there's opportunities for a more of a public engagement in the role of the district court because I think ultimately that affects. Things like, say, you know, how district courts are judged and confirmed, and you know, we can talk some more about that process too. Um, but yeah, maybe we can just start with that, you know, unless there's more thoughts you have on, on this issue. But- Not really. I mean, I, I think on that. I mean, I I think. I mean, as as we've as we've talked about it here, it just it seems to me that they're really, it it, it really falls on the. You're not going to expect, you know. John Q and Jane Q public to, to do that. They just, they don't have the time. They don't have the, the tools, the background, the knowledge. It really falls on the, on the, on the organized bar to provide or to, 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 to come up with mechanisms for providing feedback to people. And, and, and I, and I, I recognize that it's a massive undertaking. And so it's not likely to happen in any great way. And, um, you know, because the, the the feedback that we get, which is reversed, affirmed by the court of appeals, it's it's a it's a it's a slice of what we do. Did you make the right decision or the wrong decision in this particular situation? But it's only a slice. The case management stuff that we're doing, that's not getting reviewed by anybody, except at the extreme margins. I mean, I tell my new law clerks when I start that at least 90, if you think about all the decisions I have to make, at least 95% of them are effectively unreviewable. Either because they're just plain unreviewable, or because they're just never going to get appealed, or because if they do get appealed, the standard of review is so deferential on appeal. And it's this very tiny slice of things that are that are effectively 
reviewable on appeal. And then even then, there's all these disincentives to appeal, such as cost. Um, so yeah, most of what we so so the 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 formalized review process of the substantive accuracy of your decisions is is just a really narrow slice of what we do. And there's the, what what you'd like to see coming, or what I'd like to see at least coming out of the coming out of the organized bar is some way of doing that. Of course, there's all sorts of disincentives to do that too, because like who's going to sign that document? You know, who who's going to sign the document that says Judge So and So is a menace to society and and you know is is running roughshod over litigants in cases and because that person is and maybe it just gets signed by you know the local bar association but there's somebody who's the president of that and there's somebody who's the vice president and somebody who's the who's the chair of judicial evaluations and you know and you know are those people going to feel they don't have lifetime tenure you know, <laughs> and, and they got to appear in front of the people they're evaluating. So it's, it's tough. I don't, I'm not, I don't have a good answer for it. Yeah. Let's talk a little more about the, the, the confirmation processes. The last time we talked, you're, you're kind of noting about some of the ways in which that's changed uh, in the time that you've been appointed. So, so tell me some more about the way. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, it's pretty much conventional wisdom that, you know, up to a certain point in time and let's put the point in time, let's say somewhere around the mid nineties, um, there was not a whole lot of serious scrutiny to federal district judge appointments, so trial level judges, um, partly because there were so many of them, partly because there were this, the perception was, what are they doing that's all that important? They're not setting precedent for anybody. It's not the Supreme Court. It's not the Court of Appeals. Um, and and so you would you would see... The, the historically district judges got confirmed pretty quickly and without a lot of controversy, except at the extreme margins. And that's not the case anymore and hasn't been the case for, you know, a, a few years before I went through the process. And, and I, and I think it's, I mean, I think it's, it's partly because of, you know, a lot more, you know, you can take this one way or another, but, you know, over the years it's become perceived what a significant role the judiciary has in I'm not going to say political decisions, but policy decisions. And, and it's, it's normal. I think that there would be more scrutiny as that's perceived to be a, a thing. And, um, and I think there's probably a greater level of awareness that even though people like me aren't issuing the final decision on anything, we do set the table, so to speak. And, um, and, you know, maybe some people at my level end up moving up to the upper levels. And so we ought to pay attention to these people before they get too, you know, ensconced. And, and I think that, I think that's true on both sides of whatever aisle you're talking about. Um, so there's a, there's a, just a lot more scrutiny of it now. I mean, you didn't have judges, district judge appointments getting held up in the old days. Uh, it just matter. I mean, the, the local Senator would, you know, would suggest somebody to the president, the president, you know, would pretty much say that. What do I know about, you know, the district court in, in Keokuk, Iowa? Um, you know, I'm, I'm gonna go with what Senator so-and-so says, cause he lives there. And so there wasn't a lot of scrutiny at that level. And then, you know, the person to get in front of the judiciary committee and it's a district judge. And, you know, unless, unless there was, you know, some 
really bad in their background, they would kind of fly through and that would be the end of it. So then that, then that changed and it, and it changed, I think, largely for what people would call political reasons. I, again, I say on both sides um, and I, I can't be critical of that because, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly true that in some, I would say, extremely tiny percentage of cases, um, you know, some case I have is going to have some greater impact on society. I think that's a really tiny um, slice of what I do in, uh, in any practical way. But so that's all changed. And, and it's, you know, district judge, and it is still not as controversial, tend not to be as controversial as appellate nominations and certainly not as Supreme Court. Um, but you, you, it tends to be a lot more scrutiny given to them in a lot more situations where people are held up for one reason or another or, you know, have to get their nominations pulled or, you know, something else like that happens. Now, in the interest of the, for the benefit of, ju of the judiciary and the quality of the uh, people that are selected or, the, you know, what are the, uh, the things that you wish that the general public would uh, ask more of their senators or, uh, you know, expect from their elected officials as part of the selection process for judges? Like, what are the ways you think the general public? Well, I guess, what I, I guess what I would say is, I mean, and I, I don't, I can't blame anybody in, in the general populace for thinking this because it's kind of what gets drummed into people, but you, you, please don't look. So my job involves processing cases it involves deciding cases but it involves processing cases it involves case management it involves getting people to do things they don't want to do when they don't want to do them and it involves um you know giving people kind of a fair process not kind of a fair process by which their cases are going to get decided and give them an opportunity to, to do all that and so so please don't pick people like me about how you think i'm going to vote on like the burning issue of the day because number one I'm probably never going to have to decide that case. And number two, even if I do, so, okay, it's going to get reviewed at least one, maybe two levels above me. And that is one tenth of 1% at most of what I do. And so what, what you ought to be looking at is, are you, are you appointing somebody who has kind of the background and skill to be able to learn how learn in the job and, and not get, um, you know, um, sort of highfalutin view of themselves, uh, where, you know, they're, they're marching around like the Lord and master of the universe. And, um, uh, and, and, and that's what you ought to be focused on. So, you know, breadth of experience, ability to deal with different types of situations, ability to listen, what is it in their background that gives you the ability to do that, people from different kinds of backgrounds, practice backgrounds, life experience backgrounds, and so on. That's what people ought to be looking at. And, um, that, uh, and, and, and I, and I think I honestly, I, I think to a large extent that still happens. Okay. Uh, and I don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the process is, is broken or anything close to it. I don't think it is. There's a lot more scrutiny, but I, I just think that, you know, we're as, 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 human beings living in society were kind of driven to think about everything as black and white or red and blue or whatever you want to call it. And there's a lot more to my job than that. I mean, I, as I, I said, I have a, I have a lot more, I mean, although I got appointed by a different president, I have a lot more in common with somebody. I got appointed by a president Clinton. I, I have a lot more in common with a district judge. I got appointed by president Reagan, you know, than, than, than anybody would think because we're doing the same, we're managing this 
fire hose of information that's coming out and we're managing this you know herd of cats that are called lawyers that are that are dealing with this and um and yeah we might decide this case or that case in a different way but we're you know we're we're largely seeing the same types of things and we're in a problem solving business we're not in a business about you know making the marquee decision that's going to be the thing that report it's reported on the 5:30 you know national news today we're in a we're we're in a um that's not the that's not the enterprise so you know connecting some dots so you know we've emphasized this case management approach and how much just the raw 30 cases a month, how much that constrains the decisions the judge makes. You know, there's these federal rules of civil procedure and there's there's all these um, aspects of the judge's role that is just really just about uh, managing this flow of material. And that's going to be just, you're selecting for anyone who can do that. Uh, I'm also trying to connect the dot to what you said is the most difficult part of the role, which is sentencing and, you know, based on the, you know, necessarily you're saying, you know, a key part of that is weighing information um, about, you know, the, the seriousness of defense and the context in which it was conducted. And so that seems to me that necessarily that's drawing on life experiences, perspectives, backgrounds that differ. And so I'm trying to think about, you know, how to reconcile those two where it does seem like there's a major need to have people who are sensitive to different walks of life. And kind of the hard part about that is, um, you know, to what extent that inf- that information gets pooled or, you know, makes its way horizontally to other district court judges. Yeah. As you're saying, you know, there's a mechanism for that to flow upwards. Yeah. And maybe some of those appellate court judges flow down to other district court judges re- requirements through issuance of an opinion. But so I think that's one thing I'm trying to make sense of. Um, yeah, maybe I can pause there. We can pick up with the next part of that question. So um, yeah, I mean that's the problem. The, the 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 horizontal flow of information. There's there's we don't have a good mechanism for that. And you know maybe we should. Maybe we, we what what we've got right now is we have judicial conferences and we have seminars and we have these kind of informal groups like the one I described before that talks about sentencing and we have um, you know bench bar meetings and you know many judges are members of, of um, you know, bar groups of one kind or another, ends of court, you know, bar other types of bar groups. And so that's, th- there's no formalized mechanism for it. It's all kind of, um, you know, you get as much or as little of as you want. And I mean, there's plenty of judges who are not interested in getting none. And I mean, that, that, that's fine if that's what they want to do. But uh, we don't have a good mechanism for that. Uh, we don't have any any requirement of in the federal system of continuing judicial education, it's available, but it's not required. I'm not sure. I mean, you know, you have to take CLE as a lawyer. I mean, you know, how good is some of that stuff? Who, who, who the heck knows? Um, don't, don't answer that because I'm the instructor on some of it. I'm not sure I want to know how unvaluable it is, but um, so yeah, there's not, there's not a, there's not a great, uh, um, system in place for that. And, you know, and, and anything you got to do, you got to, I got to, so it, we could do it here. I mean, we, like I say, we got 20, you know, 20 act, 21 active district judges, so on and so forth. If I'm in the two judge district, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're maybe having lunch together, but 
where else is the information flowing? I mean, that's just two of us. You'd like to get information from 14 other people. So I've gotten it over the years from being on committees that involve judges from other districts, being involved in things around here, being involved in, you know, bar groups and going to meetings and, and being on, uh, you know, being part of continuing legal education and trying to listen to what I'm hearing, not just, like I say, getting, getting up there and pontificating, but there's really no organized mechanism for it. And that's probably a fault. You know, just an observation that you're talking earlier about, and of course, uh, I think it is a fascinating and wonderful aspect of the judge's role is that they issue an opinion with the basis of their decision. Um, and talking about the appellate mechanism for review, and, and you know, talking about how that's just a sliver of all the decisions that you're making. But even in that sliver, you know, the people that end up on as appellate court judges were district court judges. So that that pipeline. Uh, it seems to still affect not all, not all of them. Okay. I mean, that's okay. But yeah. But yeah. Right. Yes. Um, But so, I mean, jumping off that, so let's talk about, you know, it seems to me that there's so much about the role of the district court judge that of course, you know, I think just, I think uh, even I would, I would think the general public would think about this, but the litigants also think about that is as much as judges are bound by, uh, you know, rules, you know, that of course, you know, so much of the role of the judge is discretion. And, you know, and so we looked at judges for, um, for their equitable wielding of that discretion. And so, you know, in view of the fact that, you know, you're saying that so little is the decisions judge makes, are reviewable. Uh, what are the forces that kind of f- that that uh, steer judges as a whole towards uh, you know making the right calls, yeah. and doing the right thing? Yeah, I get it. So if you so, the, the, I guess my answer to that is if you're <clears throat> excuse me if you're paying attention to what you're doing and how it affects the cases. If you're really paying attention to that stuff, then that's then, then you're learning from that. You're finding out that I did this, and you know what? I did this five times, it really didn't work. Or I did this two or three times, and it did work. Let's try it in this other context. Um, and you know what work means? We could talk about although I have a hard stop in about ten minutes. But um, uh, but but that's that's I guess what I would say. I mean that's that's how you learn it. You learn it from from paying attention to the effect on the case. And you're going to make mistakes. Some things are going to get screwed up. That's a that's a fact of life. And you hope that you know. Then you learn on the next case. I'm not going to make that same mistake again. Um, and and it, go anyway. Go ahead. Yeah. One thing to pick up on an application of it that I'm thinking of is how is it that judges know what their blind spots are, or what are the ways in which how does anybody know what their blind spots are? Well, you're different from anybody else. Yeah, the specific concept they have in mind is, you know, what there, there's no judicial rule that requires you, Judge Canelli, to hire diverse clerks. You know, maybe right. people have some sort of ethnic background or diversity, sexual orientation, you know, you name the kind of diversity. Um, but you do those things, right? So mm-hmm. what makes you do those things? Saying it's the right thing to do. Um, and I think it's important. And I think, you know, part of Part of you know what I learned from when I was a law clerk is that it's this extraordinary opportunity to to learn and and it's an extraordinary uh, gateway into other things and and I try to um, give that opportunity to as many people as possible and not all with the same background and I, I 
because because if I did, I'd just be perpetuating the rest of the system, just kind of looking like me. Um, and so it's because I think it's the right thing to do. I mean, no, there's no rule that requires me to do it. I mean, we get as a system, we get criticized, you know, accurately for not um, being attentive enough to that uh, kind of on an overall basis. But I think that I think in this day and age, most judges try to be um, attentive to it and you, you don't succeed in each and every situation but uh but it's it's again it's because you know most of us are in this not because this is just you know the cushy job that you want to put your feet up on the table and live out your golden years if, by the way if you did his stupid decision because it's it's hard job but um we're, we're doing it because we we are, have a commitment to service and a commitment to the system and think that it's a good system, but always think that it can be improved. And that's one of the ways to improve it. You know, we talked a lot about, uh, in some ways, reflections. So talking about, you know, ways that you've changed or the bench has changed or, you know, uh, over time. And we talk a lot about the present, you know, how you manage on a day-to-day uh, you know, the, thing, the things that uh, come up for you. Uh, I'm curious to hear about how do you think about the future? You know, what, you know, say any given attorney in private practice is thinking about changes and trends, like is the kind of work that I'm doing going to be in demand? Are my clients going to be in a good spot? Is there something else I need to be moving into? What are the things that you're thinking about or, or maybe in general judges think about as far as prospective, maybe let's see on a year time horizon, you know, what are, what are the, the, the changes you're anticipating or, um, you know, what are the ways you're thinking or looking yeah, at? Yeah. So you're, you, you know, if you're looking for the, 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 let's think some deep thoughts question, you're, you're talking to the wrong guy. I mean, I'm, I'm more the nuts and bolts person. And what I'm thinking about is I'm thinking about the same thing everybody else is thinking about. We've, we've had to change everything we're doing, the way we do everything over the past year and how much of that's going to stick. And how much of it's a permanent change, and how much of it, how much of it is going to go flip back to the way it was, and and so, and because again, maybe maybe it's just because of my job or the fact that I'm suited for it in some you know perverse way. Um, that's kind of what I'm thinking about. I'm not thinking about you know in ten years are we all going to be uh, working for Amazon or something, or or all all going to be uh, you know delivering our decisions by drone. Or, or whatever, but um, so that's what I'm thinking about, and and uh, and you know, it's I think it's like in a lot of situations. I think the the answer is that some stuff is never going to go back to the way it was, and in some ways it's going to be good, in some ways it's going to be dang, that's a shame. Um, but I'm, I, I wish I wish I could give you the nice philosophical answer, but I really don't. I mean, I will say in the long term, I think I think it just in society at large, um, there is a view out there. I mean, again, I keep coming back to the criminal and sentencing that as a country, we have tended to imprison too many people for too long. And I think over time, that's a a long-term trend that I think is likely to continue. Um, But, um, you know, aside from that, I mean, what I think the trends are in civil litigation, who the hell knows? I don't know. Sorry. Final question then. So nuts and bolts. I know that you're a nuts and bolts person. So what uh what is a nuts and bolts change that you've gone through right now that you're enjoying? That I'm enjoying? Oh man, nothing. This is it's kind of stunk for the last ten months. Uh, I, I I I much prefer, and I think in our court at least, because we've 
unlike most other federal district courts, we've been very much an in-person court. I mean, most federal district courts for years and years and years have operated by phone or just on paper, not seeing lawyers. I mean, I still remember the meeting I me and I went to where I was on a committee, a judge's committee, and we went around the table and there was a judge from a district in Florida. And I, you know, I said, well, I'm so-and-so, I'm from the Northern District of Illinois. And he turned to me and says, oh, you're in, that, you're in that court where you guys see lawyers all the day. Why would you want to do that? Or you see lawyers every day. Why would you want to do that? And I said, like, because we like it and it's, it's human contact and so on. And, and, and so I think, um, uh, you know, that's gone away. And I think probably what's going to happen is that a lot of that's going to stick because, you know, from a, just a cost and convenience standpoint, it's way more efficient and less expensive for people to have a 10 minute phone call rather than a 10 minute court appearance that requires basically two hours of commitment of your time to come here and sit around and wait and then talk and then go back and go through security on both ends and whatnot. But um, so I think there's going to be more of a trend, uh, you know, towards um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm at work right now and I'm sitting here in this gigantic office and there's nobody else here. Nobody. My assistant's not here. My law clerks are not here. They're all working at home. My court reporter, I had all these hearings today. She's sitting at her home. My courtroom deputy clerk, she's sitting in her home. I think there's going to be more and more of that. Uh, that's a damn shame too. And, um, and I mean, it's, it's, it's great for a lot of people. Uh, it's, it's, it, on an individual basis, it's great for a lot of people. It gives people a lot more contact with their family. I mean, a place like Chicago, you're saving two hours every day. You're saving that two hour commute. That is great in a lot of ways, but in, in terms of, you know, what does this mean for the system of justice that we're now just doing stuff on the phone? And I don't I don't think it's good. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. We can end on that note. All right. Well, hopefully you'll get it five minutes worth out of this anyway. So. I think I got a few more than that, but uh, Judge Kelly, thanks so much for taking the time. Very uh, fascinating, insightful, and uh, really appreciate you. Well, th thanks for the opportunity. It was fun.